Well, good morning. It's a great privilege to be here with you this morning to, to worship, to study God's word together. Uh, this, is a, this is a really great church, and, uh, and I'm just honored that you would allow me to be here, uh, even in the snow. We don't get a lot of snow in Texas, so I did grow up in Chicago, though, so it's kind of familiar, and it just feels good to be in a winter wonderland for however minute, many minutes it will last, but uh, it's my privilege to serve as the stated clerk of our presbytery, and uh, most people don't really know what a stated clerk is, and that's probably just as well at times, but uh, what do I do? I I sit in my office and I think I've got a day planned out to do some reading and some studying this and that, and then the phone rings. A lot of times it's, it's a guy named Reverend Dr. Bucky Hunsecker, or it's a church with problems. And uh, so sometimes my days I thought had, I had planned out and God has other plans. Uh, so I, but I, I enjoy doing what I do. We have a really great presbytery. Uh, we have about 140 worshiping communities at this point. So that just means at any given moment, my phone can ring and somebody is doing something dumb and I get the call and try to figure that out. But uh, it, it's a great honor and privilege. As we serve, uh, Bucky and I served together for another four months, 18 days, 12 and a half hours and 32 seconds, but who's counting, right? It's, it's, it's really great. So thank you for allowing me to be here today. Uh, my daughter, when she uh, got out of college, she got a job, which was very exciting. She got a job as a, 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 math, a math teacher, a middle school math teacher, which I thought was always funny because when she was young, she, she claimed she wasn't good at math. She had a learning disability related to math. Then she became a math teacher. But one, one time she went away to a, a seminar and she came home with this teacher t-shirt that said, I'm a math teacher, of course I have problems. I, that, who, could, who could put it any, any better? As I was thinking about it, this is, uh, I've, I've had the privilege of serving or being a member since my birth and I've been a, I was practically born in church been in church for 68 years now and, and been a member of or served in, in eight different churches. And of all the churches, one, one thing seems to have been in common. They all had problems. Well, it's, I'm glad to be here uh, with you at Stewart Presbyterian Church where y'all don't have problems. So, but, but let me talk to you about people out there who do and see see what maybe we can learn uh, from God. You know, we, we all face problems. I'm just kidding you. We all face problems. And, and when, when I was a teenager and a little bit older, we all talked about church in kind of condescending terms and said, you know what? We need to get back to being like the first century church. We should be a first century church because they had it all together. No, they didn't. If, if you read in scripture, you know the first century church didn't have it all together. And, and one of the churches that probably had the most problems, at least from what we read in scripture, was a church founded by no one less than the Apostle Paul. And so much so that the Apostle Paul wrote at least four letters that we know of to the church at Corinth. Now, he wrote one letter 
Then he wrote a second letter, and we know that as 1 Corinthians. Then he wrote at least one more letter, and a letter in response to that, and we know that as 2 Corinthians. Now, if you're a math teacher, you've got problems, right? You've got two letters, but that's how it works out. And maybe he wrote more and all that, but the first century church, the church at Corinth, had a lot of problems. And in 55 AD, the Apostle Paul wrote what we call 1 Corinthians to this first century church that really didn't have it all together. Remember, in that church, there were issues of of leadership and division. Some said, I follow Paul. Others, I follow Apollos. I follow Christ. The really spiritual one said, of course, or I follow Peter, and the really spiritual one said, I follow Christ. Remember, in that church at Corinth, there was immorality in the church. Paul says, there's immorality in your church of a kind that not even the pagans tolerate. A church. There, there were worship wars. You know, the 21st century church is not the first church to experience worship wars. There, you had people, people who wanted what they wanted. They, they were self-centered. They were out of control in their use of the spiritual gifts. I want to use my gift for my own glory. Right? They, they had a lot of issues. But at the end of this long letter that we call 1 Corinthians, at the end of this long letter, what, what Paul says, in essence, is that, friends, whatever other problems you have, and you have problems, whatever Whatever things you think are important, and they are, I want to tell you as I close about three of the most important things I know, three rock bed facts of our faith, and I want you to remember them. And so when I, when I hear the Apostle Paul say, these are the most important things I know, that gets my attention. If Paul thought they were important, then I think they're important. And so this morning, I want to share with you briefly three of the most important things I know from God's Word. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Uh, It's found on page 1076 in my Bible, which is the English Standard Large Print Genuine Leather Edition. Uh, If you you would stand with me as we read from God's holy word. Friends, this is the best thing you'll hear all morning. So listen carefully. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom have fallen asleep, though some are, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. Please be seated. So what are these three matters of first importance, according to Paul? First, he says, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Well, why did Christ die for our sins? Our Bible tells us that, that we've all sinned against God. We've all sinned against God, and every sin has to be paid for. I, I, whether we like the word sin or not, at least we're willing to admit, aren't we, that, that our lives are really kind of a mess. We've, we've all done things we shouldn't have done. We failed to do things we should have done, and, and we have no excuse. We're a mess because we've broken God's law. And because we've broken God's law, we deserve punishment. And because we've broken God's law, we've incurred a debt, and that debt has to be paid. And because we've broken God's law, God has declared war on us. And somehow we need to be brought into a right relationship with God. We need peace with God. The problem is that God is holy and just, and so he can't tolerate our sin. Sin has to be punished, and the punishment that we deserve is death. So, so how do we, who are far from God, get reconciled or get, get made right with God? How do we get our lives put back together? Well, well fortunately, we don't have to figure it out. God has a plan. In fact, God has always had a plan. We sometimes call it God's eternal plan of redemption. And God's plan was that for the, from before the beginning of time, he would pay the debt we owed. He would pay our debt by sending his son to pay that debt. Remember, friends, God loves us. And Jesus loves his father. Jesus loves us, and so he, Jesus, was willing to come to this earth to take the punishment we deserve, to pay the debt, the price for our sin, and, and to declare that we would be reconciled to God and adopted into his forever family. That's the gospel. Tim Keller, a, a great and well-known Presbyterian pastor, said this. He said, the, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. So, so how does that happen? Well, that, that happens. We become right with God through what is called substitutionary atonement. Now, am I showing off or what? Big word for the day, substitutionary atonement. Let me just suggest to you, friends, that substitutionary atonement is the greatest news you will ever hear. Substitutionary atonement. Let me break it down for you. First, let's work backward. What is, what is atonement? Well, atonement is to pay a price for having violated the law. I'll be leaving here uh, when we're done and driving on my way home to Houston and 
if I'm going a little more aggressively or a lot more aggressively than I should, I might get to meet one of Virginia's finest, one of North Carolina's finest, one of South Carolina's finest, plan to spend the night, hopefully not in the presence of one of Georgia's finest. You get the idea. If I get stopped and if I have a ticket written against me, I'll have to pay a fine for having broken the law. I will have to atone for that transgression of the law by paying a price. Well, sometimes the penalties are more serious because the crimes committed are more serious, sometimes involve imprisonment. And in the most serious of circumstances, if the crime committed is serious enough, the penalty of death can be inflicted. Atonement means a price has to be paid for, for a crime that's been committed. So that's atonement. What about this substitutionary thing? Substitute. Well, you know what a substitute is. If you've had any experience with um, participating in sports and basketball or football, I hear there's a I hear there's a football game on today, sometime, somewhere. I, Chicago Bears are not playing, so I'm not that interested. Well, sort of. But at any rate, what will happen there? In that game, 11 players from each side will go on the field. And then maybe during the course of the game, one will, some will get tired or injured or aren't good at what they have to be doing, and, and they'll come out. And someone will come and take their place, and we call that a substitute. Well, you see, substitutionary atonement means that someone else comes and pays the price that I should rightly pay for my having broken the law. That's substitutionary atonement. And substitutionary atonement is taught from the first book of the Bible to the last. In the book of Genesis, we, we see in, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are living in this beautiful, perfect, wonderful garden. And then that isn't good enough for them. Following God's way is not good enough for them. And they sin. And, and they, they do the unimaginable. They go and hide from God. And God comes looking and says, Adam, where are you guys? He knows where they are. But, but they say, God, we went and hid because we're naked. Really? Who told you you were naked? Well, they knew. And so what did they do to cover up their nakedness? They tried to make clothes of leaves. How well do you think that's working out? And that's not good at all. So what does God do? God then covers them with animal skins. Now, I grew up in the small farming community of Chicago, Illinois. I, I've never hunted, but I suspect that animals do not shed their skin willingly. Am I right? See, a, an innocent animal had to be killed in order to clothe Adam and Eve. A, a, an innocent animal had to sacrifice its life to provide clothing for Adam and Eve. And, and so we see then years, years, years later, God's people... Israel are in bondage in Egypt. And God sends a series of plagues to get Pharaoh to 
let my people go. And in the 10th plague, God says, here's the deal. I'm going to send a death angel over all of Egypt. And on the night when I do, if anyone in, of God's people there will take a perfect lamb and kill it and take the blood and put it over the door, the doorposts, the, although the death angel will kill all the firstborn in all of Egypt, if this, if this blood is put over the door, the death angel will pass over and God's people will be redeemed. See, an innocent lamb takes a hit to provide for the redemption of God's people. And so throughout all the Old Testament, we see this practice of, of sacrifice, the sacrificial system where a, a lamb or a goat or a bull or, or birds are, are sacrificed to provide for the forgiveness of the people. And then one day, John the Baptist is out baptizing and he sees Jesus coming, walking his way and he points to him and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then a few years later, as Jesus hung on that cross, he said those incredibly great words, it is finished. The original language, the language is literally, the debt has been paid. Or it was a term of commerce, paid in full. And so then we fast forward to the end of time, and in Revelation 5, verse 12, we see that worshipers come at the end of time, and they say this, they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, to wealth and power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. See, friends, what, what was pictured in Genesis as a, a literal lamb being killed to provide clothing for God's people it is fulfilled when the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world and he comes again to bring us home to be with him forever in glory. Now, ponder this. No other religious leader in history has ever offered to atone for the sins of his followers. No other re religious leader in history has ever declared that he himself has atoned for their sins. Jesus is the only one who has ever made that claim. Again, Tim Keller says, this is the fundamental difference between the gospel and religion. Christianity's basic message differs at the root with the assumptions of traditional religion. The founders of every other major religion essentially came as teachers, not as saviors. They came to say, do this and you will find the divine. But Jesus came essentially as a savior rather than a teacher, though he was that as well. Jesus said, I am the divine come to do for you what you could not do for yourself. See, that, that's the message of the Christian faith, that we are saved not by our record, but by Christ's record, by his record, by his perfection being substituted for our sin. We're forgiven because Christ died for our sins. That's the unique message of Christianity versus all the other religions of the world. That was the message the disciples took to all the world immediately following Jesus' resurrection. Paul says this is a matter of first importance. So I just want to ask you today, is, uh, do you believe that? 
Is it true? Is it true in your life? Have you ever, have you ever thought, well, this has never made sense before, but now I understand. Maybe today is the day for you to make a commitment to say, you know what? I believe, I understand. Today, today I'm going to follow Jesus, and there's no turning back. And if that's the case, I'd love to hear from you or talk to Danny or Bucky or the elders or their wives or a lot of people would love to share with you how you can know for certain that you have received the gift of eternal life. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. Second, he was buried and raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Friends, I've been in church all my life. I've always heard the resurrection of Jesus taught and believed it and all that, but I became a lawyer and as I became a lawyer, I didn't lose my faith, but I began to, began to press in and think, so is this, just a, is this a really good religious thought to keep in mind, or did this really happen? And I've come to believe, and I still believe, that this is not just a wild, irrational thought. It's not just something bizarre. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the most logical explanation of all the facts that we have. Let me point out just three. First, Jesus was killed by professionals. He was killed by professionals. No, no scholar, religious or otherwise, thinks anything else. No, no one disputes that professionals killed Jesus. No one believes that the soldiers were mistaken about his being dead. No one believes that somehow, having gone through the flogging, the beating, and then the actual crucifixion and being hung on the cross, that he somehow was taken and put in a cold, dark, damp tomb with a big, heavy rock in front of him. He just swooned, being dead. All that happened, somehow he was miraculously resuscitated without the benefit of medical care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Friends, he was dead. He was dead. No one questions that. Fact number one, he was killed by professionals. Fact number two, the tomb is empty. Everyone in Jesus' day, again, agreed that the tomb was empty. Now, immediately, immediately that very morning, the Jewish leaders and others started rumors trying to explain it away. Some said, well, you know, the followers of Jesus, they just went to the wrong tomb that morning. Fair enough. They went to the wrong tomb. Show us the right tomb. Take us to the right tomb. Case closed. We're done. Go. They did not go to the wrong tomb. If this, if the, another argument is that and the followers of Jesus, this ragtag group of guys who were not happy, they were very depressed and lonely and scared to death, that this ragtag group somehow was able to overpower a highly trained and well-armed Roman guard. Well, if that's the case, then that highly trained, well-armed guard who was over, overpowered by these disciples would have been immediately executed. See, friends, no one, no one seriously disputes that the tomb was empty. 
and the body has never been produced. And then the third fact that I think you just can't get, get by is the consistent testimony of Jesus' followers, even in the face of torture and martyrdom. You know, the apostles and many of the early followers were brutally tortured and martyred for their faith. Just to name a few, Matthew suffered death by the sword in Ethiopia, Ethiopia as he'd gone to preach the gospel. Mark was in Alexandria, Egypt in a great revival meeting. He was, he was dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. Luke, Luke was in, on an evangelistic crusade in Greece and things were going so well that a mob took him and took him out and hung him. Peter, as many of you know from church history, Peter was crucified upside down. Did you also know that his wife was crucified right next to him? James, the half-brother of Jesus, was taken up to the pinnacle of the temple, some hundred feet in the air, and thrown down. And when that didn't kill him, they came and clubbed him to death. And I could go on and on, but dinner is coming, and I wouldn't want to intrude on that. But, but only the Apostle John lived to a ripe old age, but not because they didn't try to kill him. They actually tried to boil him in oil, and when that didn't work, they said, well, there's something about this guy. And so he was sent off to the Isle of Patmos and later became a bishop in Turkey. But he's the only one. That's how they died, and yet none of them, none of them would deny their Lord's resurrection. None of them said, yeah, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, if you'll let me go, sh I'll show you where the body is. I I'll tell you how we did it. All they had to do to escape torture and death was to admit that they concocted a lie and simply deny their faith. But I want to suggest to you that, that it defies common sense and the evidence of history that anyone, let alone a group of 10 or 11 disheartened men, would persist in holding to a lie when they could just as easily have walked free by admitting that it was all a fraud. I mean, do you really believe that all these men and women were uh, willing to suffer horrible deaths in order to perpetuate a lie? Friends, the best explanation is that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. He's alive. Our Savior lives. You know, in the horrible, price, horrible death of Jesus, we see the horrible price that had to be paid for our sin. But in the resurrection of Jesus, we see the loud declaration of God that the debt has been paid for us. And today we live in the humble yet joyful position of being adopted into God's forever family. Paul says, this is truly one of the most important things I know. And I say, that's right, Paul. And that drives my life and perhaps it drives yours. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And then third, our past does not disqualify us from being adopted into God's family. Now, by 55 AD, when Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, he mentions Peter and the 12 and James and 
They're all well-respected, great pillars of the church. But that isn't always the case. Wasn't always the case, was it? Certainly wasn't true immediately following Jesus' death. Remember Peter? I love Peter. For, to me, Peter is the patron saint of those of us who speak before we think. Anybody else in there? And Peter, Peter says to Jesus just a week before his death, Jesus, I'll go with you anywhere. I'll die for you, even if these other guys fall off. I'm with you. And yet, within a matter of days, he denies Jesus three times. And yet, after his resurrection, Jesus says to the women at the tomb, go and tell the others and Peter, and Peter to meet me in Galilee. Peter is forgiven. Peter's restored and he becomes a great, a great leader in the church. What about the rest? What about the other 10? They'd all scattered at the time of the crucifixion. They were, they were hiding out. They were afraid. And yet a week later, 10 of them appear. Uh, Jesus appears to the 10 of them. And Thomas was out doing something else. But he comes then and, he's, and uh, they say, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas, great man of faith, right, says, yeah, I'm not buying it. I don't believe it until I see it, until I see him myself, until I touch his hands and his feet, I will not believe. And yet, when he saw Jesus, Thomas believed. He said, my Lord, my God. And Thomas then, we believe, tradition tells us went off to be a great missionary in India. What about James? James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, James lived with Jesus all his life. But he didn't believe in Jesus until after Jesus' death and resurrection. See, James was really the original late adopter. But when he saw the evidence... He became a man of great faith, a pillar in the church of Jerusalem who eventually lost his life for that faith. And then finally, what about Paul? Paul was a persecutor of the church. Remember, Jesus had said, some will persecute you thinking they are doing the will of God, thinking they're doing the right thing. They're going to go out and persecute you. That's exactly what Paul did. Paul was a persecutor, a murderer of believers, responsible for the death of Stephen and others. In fact, Paul, Paul was so zealous, as he was saw the other way, that, that when he became a believer and word started to get out, hey, Saul, Tarsus, he's been converted. People said, eh, not so sure, I'm not buying that. They doubted his conversion, and, and for good reason. And then Jesus came to him, according to the English Standard Version, as to one untimely born. Or if you have a new international version, as to one abnormally born. This word abnormally born is a Greek word, ektroma, and it's, it's only used here in the New Testament. But in other places in classical Greek writing, it's used of, of a stillborn baby or of an aborted fetus. Think about that. Paul, here's Paul, born dead in his sins and trespasses, but then made alive 
and given new life by Jesus. And he's called to preach and to teach and to write much of the New Testament. Friends, God took a bitter enemy and made him a beloved and adopted child of his, of his own. So here's, here's the key thought as I, as I start to wrap up. The key thought here is that nothing that any of these people did qualified them to become members of the kingdom of God. But nothing they did disqualified them from being loved by God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and being received into his forever family. What does that mean to you and me, friends? That means that nothing that we ever do will get us into heaven. But nothing we've ever done will keep us out either. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He rose from the dead on the third day according to the scripture. And our past does not disqualify us from being adopted into God's forever family. So what, so what does all this mean? What, what, is, what do we take home with us this morning? Well, we all face issues. We face challenges. And, and if we're honest, we might even admit that we have problems. We're the church. We have problems. But whatever else may happen, as we seek God and try to reach our community, your community, my community, this whole world for Christ, as we seek to reach those folks. Let's remember that whatever else we do and believe, at the bedrock of who we are, we know and believe Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. That he was buried and raised on the third day, according to the scripture, and that no matter what we've done in our past or what we will do in the future, if we trust in Christ's work on the cross, we are his children forever. Martin Luther had, had a calendar. It was not a very long calendar. He had on it just two dates. One was today, and the other was the date when the Lord Jesus will return. And Luther said, I, I strive between today and that day to live for him in every possible way and in every moment. Friends, this is our day. This is our time to run the race of faith together. So let's do it with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. Let's do it with integrity. Let's do it with passion so that one day when we stand before him, we'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. Father, that, that is our prayer. Would you make it so? For Jesus' sake, amen. You know, folks, what uh, Ron shared this morning is true. Uh, not so much because Ron said it, but because God's Word said it. And, uh, and Ron was declaring what is true, that it doesn't matter what our past may have been. It doesn't matter what our present may be. Uh, it, God loves us. Uh, none of us are too far removed that we can't turn to Christ. And uh, it's also true that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that Christ was buried, that He was raised according to the Scriptures. If you've never trusted in that truth, 
as Ron said earlier. Love to talk with you. Love to pray with you. Uh, if you're here today and you don't have time, you don't, you don't want to talk now, uh, grab one of those visitor cards, put Pastor on it, fold it over, and, and say, I want to talk to you uh, about it, Pastor. Uh, if you're listening online, go to stuartpresbyterian.org. Uh, there's a prayer request form there. Just put on that prayer request form. I'd like to talk with you about salvation. Those come directly to me, and I'd love to, to talk with you. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week.